the rich man, and the poor, the various trials of believers. They are not the happy whom the blinded world think to be such. The man of successful enterprise and increasing wealth had some enjoyment while busily occupied in making a fortune. But now when he has arrived at a higher pitch of wealth than his most sanguine hopes had anticipated, he is far from being happy or even contented. The desire of acquisition has grown into an inveterate habit, and he cannot stop in his career. He must find out some new enterprise, he must engage in some new speculation, and before all is over it is well if he loses not all he has gained. Being accustomed to live high, he is unprepared to meet poverty, and to preserve his family from such a mortifying change of circumstances, he contrives ways and means to defraud his creditor. This man is not happy in his prosperity, and under a reverse of fortune he is truly miserable. He has put away a good conscience, which is the most essential ingredient in that peace which Christ gives to his disciple. His reputation, too, if not tarnished, remains under a cloud of suspicion which never can be removed. In the world around he meets with neglect and sometimes contempt from those on whom he once looked down. At home he is before him the sad spectacle of a family degraded from their former rank and under the feelings of mortified pride, struggling to conceal their poverty from the gaze and contempt of an unpitying world. But even if no reverse is experienced and the man continues to be successful in all his enterprises, and if at the close of his career he can calculate millions in the bank or in real estate, his only remaining difficulty is how to dispose of such a mass of wealth. He has a son, it is true, but he is a base profligate, and in a single year would, by reckless speculation or at the gaming table, dissipate the whole which has been so carefully hoarded up. And yet this man could scarcely be induced to give a dollar to any benevolent object, lest he should lessen the amount which he was by every means raking together for this unworthy son. He has daughters, too, whose husbands in selecting them had more respect to their fortunes than to any personal qualifications. And these are impatient that the old man should live so long and hold the purse strings with so close a grip. Though they will go through all the ceremonial of deep grief and mourn as decently and as long as fashion requires, yet no event is heard with more heartfelt pleasure than that their aged relative is at last obliged to give up all his possessions. Are the rich happy? Not such as have been described. But there are a favorite few who seem to have learned the secret of using wealth so as to do much good and to derive from it much enjoyment. They are desirous of making increase, too. But it is all for the Lord, not to be hoarded until they are obliged to leave it, and then to be distributed among benevolent societies. No, they are continually contriving methods of making it produce good now. They are parsimonious to themselves, that they may be liberal to the poor and may be able to enrich the treasury of the Lord. Such men are blessed in their deeds. And though unostentatious in their charities, their light cannot be hid. A few rich men of this description have lived in England, and even our new country records with gratitude the names of a few benefactors of the public. We trust in God that the number will be multiplied. Listener, go and do likewise. 
but more commonly the elect of God are not called to glorify him in this way. Wealth is a dangerous talent, and is very apt so to block up the way to heaven, that they who do press in have, as it were, to squeeze through a gate as difficult of entrance as the eye of a needle to a camel. And alas, many professors who bid fair for heaven, when in moderate circumstances, after becoming rich, are found drowned in perdition, pierced through with many sorrows. Poverty and suffering are by infinite wisdom judged best for the traveler to Zion. Let the Lord's people be contented with their condition, and thankful that they are preserved from snares and temptations, which they would have found it difficult to withstand. God will not suffer them to be tempted above what they are able to bear, but with the temptation provides a way for their escape. The rich are exposed to suffering as well as the poor, though their sufferings may be of a different kind. The poor man may be forced by necessity to live on coarse bread. The rich man also, while tantalized with the daily sight of the finest of the wheat, is obliged for the sake of his health to live upon bran. The poor man lies on a hard bed because he can afford to get no better. The rich man lies as hard to preserve himself from the aches and pains which are the natural fruit of luxury. The poor man has little of the honors of the world, but then he is envied by none, and passes along in obscurity, without being set up as a mark to be shot at by envy and malignity, which is often the lot of the rich. When sickness comes, the rich man has some advantages, but when oppressed with painful sickness, neither a bed of down nor rich hangings and carpets contribute anything to his relief. And in such a time of distress, the privations of the poor, though the imagination readily magnifies them, add not much to the pain produced by disease. But we have dwelt too long on this comparison between the real sufferings of the rich and the poor. More, after all, depends upon the submission and patient temper of the mind than upon external circumstances. And indeed, so short is the time of man's continuance upon earth, and so infinite the joys or miseries of the future world, that to make much of these little differences would be like estimating the weight of a feather when engaged in weighing mountains. Who thinks it a matter of any concern whether the circumstances of persons who lived a thousand years ago were affluent or destitute, except so far as these external enjoyments and privations contributed to their moral improvement or the contrary. If we could be duly impressed with the truth which respect our eternal condition, we should consider our afflictions here as scarcely worthy of being named. Thus the Apostle Paul seemed to view his own sufferings and those of his fellow Christians when he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Compared with the sufferings of others, those of the apostles were neither few nor small, but in the view of eternity by faith he calls them these light afflictions which are but for a moment, and he had learned a happy art not only of being contented in whatever state he was, but of rejoicing in all his tribulations. Not that tribulation considered in itself could be a manner of rejoicing, for whoever found pain and reproach to be pleasant. But he rejoiced in these things on account of their salutary effects. For, says he, tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. 
The primitive Christians were encouraged to bear patiently and joyfully their present sufferings on account of the rich and gracious reward which awaited them in the world to come. Upon the mere principle of contrast, our earthly sorrows will render our heavenly joys the sweeter. But this is not all. Hear the words of Jesus himself. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Peter also testifies, And if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ once suffered the just for the unjust. He was also of the same opinion with his brother Paul, that Christians ought to rejoice in all their sufferings for righteousness' sake. Beloved, he says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of God resteth on you. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Let Zion's mourners lift up their heads and rejoice, for though weeping may endure for a night, joy cometh in the morning. Let all Christians manifest to others the sweetness and excellency of religion by rejoicing continually in the Lord. The perennial sources of their spiritual joy can never fail, for while God lives and reigns they ought to rejoice. Since Christ has died and ever lives to make intercession for them, they have ground of unceasing joy. While the throne of grace is accessible, let the saints rejoice. Let them rejoice in all the promises of God which are exceeding great and precious, and are all yea and amen in Christ Jesus to the glory of God. In one sense, all our sufferings are the fruits of sin. For if we had never sinned, we should never have suffered. But in another sense, the sufferings of believers are produced by love. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. As in the economy of salvation, God leaves his chosen people to struggle with the remainders of sin in their own hearts, so he has ordained that their pilgrimage to the heavenly Canaan shall be through much tribulation. From the beginning the saints have generally been a poor and afflicted people, often oppressed and persecuted, and when exempt from sufferings from the hands of men, they are often visited with sickness, or have their hearts sorely lacerated by the bereavement of dear friends, are punished with poverty, or loaded with obloquy and reproach. There seems to be an incongruity in believers enjoying ease and prosperity in this world when their Lord was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It seems indeed to be a condition of our reigning with him that we should suffer with him. When James and John, under the influence of ambition, asked for the highest places in his kingdom, he said to them, Can ye drink of the cup which I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They seem not to have understood his meaning. For with self-confidence they answered, We are able. He replied, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. For the Christian to seek great things for himself here, 
does not become the character of a disciple of the meek and lowly Jesus. The early Christians were called to endure much persecution, but they did not count their lives dear unto them. When the apostles after our Lord's ascension were publicly beaten for preaching that the Savior was risen, they rejoiced together that they were counted worthy to suffer such things for his name's sake. It is a striking peculiarity in the religion of Christ that in the conditions of discipleship, taking up the cross is the first thing. He never tempted any to follow him with the promise of earthly prosperity or exemption from suffering. On the contrary, he assures them that in the world they shall have tribulation. He does indeed promise to those who forsake father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, houses and lands, a compensation of a hundredfold more than they had left. But he permits them not to fall into the delusion that this hundredfold was to consist in earthly goods, for he immediately adds, with persecutions. Whosoever will not take Christ with his cross shall never sit with him on a throne. No cross, no crown holds out an important truth in few words. In his intercessory prayer, Christ is request for his disciples that they may be kept from the evil which is in the world, but he means from the evil one, from the evil of sin, and from temptations above their strength to endure. The reasons why Christ has chosen that his people should be afflicted and often sorely persecuted are not difficult to ascertain. We have already shown that the rod is one of God's means for recovering backsliders from their wanderings, but afflictions are also employed to prevent Christians from backsliding. In prosperity, pride is apt to rise and swell. Carnal security blinds the eyes. The love of riches increases. Spiritual affections are feeble and eternal things are viewed as far off and concealed by a thick mist. These circumstances are indeed the common precursors of backsliding, but to prevent this evil and to stir up the benumbed feelings of piety, the believer is put into the furnace. At first he finds it hard to submit, and is like a wild bull in a net. His pride and his love of carnal ease resist a hand that smites him, but severe pain awakes him from his sleep. He finds himself in the hands of a heavenly Father, and sees that nothing can be gained by murmuring or rebelling. His sins rise up to view, and he is convinced of the justice of the divine dispensation. His hard heart begins to yield, and he is stirred up to cry mightily to God for help and grace. Although he wishes and prays for deliverance from the pressure of affliction, yet he is more solicitous that it should be rendered effectual to subdue his pride, wean him from the love of the world, and give perfect exercise to patience and resignation, than that it should be removed. He knows that the furnace is a place for purification. He hopes and prays that his dross may be consumed, and that he may come forth as gold which is passed seven times through the refiner's fire. Paul attributes a powerful efficacy to afflictions, so as to place him among the most efficacious means of grace. For, he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days corrected us after their own pleasures, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised thereby. 
When faith is in very lively exercise, believers can rejoice even in tribulation. Not that they cease to feel the pain of the rod, for then it would cease to be an affliction, but while they experience a smart, they are convinced that it is operating as a salutary though bitter medicine, and they rejoice in the prospect or feeling of returning health. But again God pours not the rich consolations of His grace into a heart that is not broken. He sendeth the rich empty away. The whole need not a physician, but when by affliction he has broken the hard heart and emptied it of self-confidence, he delights to pour in the joy of the Holy Ghost. Therefore it often occurs that the believer's most joyous seasons are his suffering seasons. He has, it is true, more pungent pain than when in prosperity and ease, but he has also richer, deeper draughts of consolation. Though sorrow and joy are opposite, there is a mysterious connection between them. Sorrow, as it were, softens and prepares the heart for the reception of the joy of the Lord. As the dispensations of God towards the children are exceedingly diverse in different ages, so His dealings with individual believers who live at the same time are very different. Why it is so we cannot tell, but we are sure that He has wise reasons for all that He does. In some cases pious persons appear to pass through life with scarcely a touch from His rod, while others who to us do not appear to need more chastisement than those are held the greater part of their life under the heavy pressure of affliction with scarcely any intermission. Here is a Christian man who has nearly reached the usual termination of human life and has hardly known what external affliction is in his own experience. Prosperity has attended him through his whole course. But there is a desolate widow who has been bereaved of her husband and children and has neither brother nor sister, nephew nor niece, and for eight years has been confined to her bed by wasting and painful disease and has no hope of relief on this side of the grave. Such a disparity is striking, but we see only the outside of things. There are sore afflictions of the mind while the body is in health. That man may have had severe chastisement in this afflicted desolate widow, I have heard an aged Christian declare that though he had experienced much sickness, lost many dear friends, and met with many sore disappointments in life, his sufferings on these accounts were not to be compared with the internal anguish which he often endured, and of which no creature had the least conception. This shows that we are not competent to form an accurate judgment of the sufferings of different persons. Besides, when affliction has been long continued, we become in a measure accustomed to it, and as it were hardened against it. But when we judge of such cases, we transfer our own acute feelings to the condition, which are no correct standard of the sufferings of the patient under a lingering disease. The widow to whom I referred was not a fictitious but a real person. I once visited her and conversed with her and found her serene and happy, desiring nothing but a speedy departure that she might be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But she was not impatient. She was willing to remain and suffer just as long as God pleased. Her heart was truly subdued to the obedience of Christ. There was only one earthly object for which she deemed to feel solicitude. That was the little forsaken and almost desolate church of which she was a member. For a series of years disaster after disaster had fallen upon this little flock. Their house of worship had been accidentally burnt. They had been so long without a pastor that they dwindled down to a few disheartened and scattered members, and only one aged elder remained.
Seldom was there an occasional sermon in the place, as they had no convenient house of meeting on the Sabbath. Now, although this poor widow could not have attended if there had been preaching every Lord's Day, yet that little church lay as a burden on her mind. And I heard a minister who knew the circumstances say, that as once a poor wise man saved the city, so this poor pious widow by her prayer saved the church from extinction. For before her death a neat new church was erected, and a pastor settled, and a number of souls hopefully converted and gathered into the church. I was once on a visit to a friend who requested me to accompany her to see a sick woman supposed to be near her end. The house was not a cabin but a mere wreck of a once comfortable dwelling. Every appearance of comfort was absent. The partitions appeared to have been taken down and the whole house was turned into one large room. There was no glass on the windows, but that mattered not. It was summer. Upon entering this desolate place, I saw the sick woman lying on a miserable bed, unable to raise her head from the pillow and attended only by an aged mother about eighty years of age and a little daughter about seven or eight. Here, indeed, seemed to be the very picture of wretchedness, and I was told that her brutal husband generally came home drunk and never gave her a kind or soothing word. Here the conclusion. I verily thought before I left the house that this was the happiest woman I ever saw. Her devout and tender eye was sweetly fixed on heaven. Her countenance was serene and illumined with a heavenly smile. I would like to narrate the following chapter because it has been a consolation to me and I hope to my listeners too. The chapter is on melancholy. Advice to the friends of persons thus affected, illustrative cases, causes of melancholy, and insanity. We have shown before how the principle of spiritual life is affected in its appearance by two circumstances, the degree of vigor given to it in its commencement, and the degree of knowledge and maturity of judgment which one may possess above another. We now come to another pregnant cause of the great variety which is found in the exercises and comforts of real Christians, and that is the difference of temperament, which is so familiar and which so frequently modifies the characters as well as the feelings of men in other manners. There can be no doubt, I think, that the susceptibility of living emotion is exceedingly different in men under the same circumstances. Persons of strong affections and ardent temperament upon an unexpected bereavement of a beloved wife or child are thrown into agony of grief, which is scarcely tolerable, while those of a cold phlegmatic temperament seem to suffer no exquisite anguish from this or any other cause. Not that they possess more fortitude or resignation, for the contrary may be the fact, but their susceptibilities are less acute, and this disparity appears in nothing more remarkably than in the tendency to entertain different degrees of hope or fear in similar circumstances. For while some will hope whenever there is the smallest ground for a favorable result, others are sure to fear the worst which could possibly happen and their apprehensions are proportioned to the magnitude of the interest at stake. Now, is it wonderful that men's religious feelings should be affected by the same causes? When two exercised persons speak of their convictions, their sorrows, and their hopes, is it not to be expected that with the same truth before their minds, those of a sanguine temperament will experience more sensible emotions, and upon the same evidence entertain more confident hopes than those of a contrary disposition? 
and of necessity the joy of the one will be much more lively than that of the other. Thus two persons may be found whose experience may have been very similar as to their conviction of sin and exercise of faith and repentance, and yet the one will express a strong confidence of having passed from death unto life, while the other is afraid to express a trembling hope. Of these two classes of Christians, the first is the more comfortable, the latter the safer, as being unwilling to be satisfied with any evidence but the strongest. But there is not only a wide difference from this natural cause of the liveliness of the emotions of joy and sorrow, and of the confidence of the hope entertained, but usually a very different mode of expression. Sanguine persons from the very impulse of ardent feeling have a tendency to express things in a strong language, constantly verging on exaggeration. They are apt to use superlatives and strong emphasis as wishing to convey a full idea of their feelings, while those of a colder temperament and more timid disposition fall below the reality in their descriptions and are cautious not to convey to others too high an idea of what they have experienced. This diversity as a cause is permanent characterizes the religious experience of these respective classes of Christians through their whole pilgrimage and may be equally manifest on a dying bed. Hence it appears how very uncertain a knowledge of the internal state of the heart we obtain from the words and professions of serious persons. It should also serve to shake the vain confidence of those who imagine that they can decide with certainty whether another is a truly converted person, merely from hearing a narrative of his religious experience. Two persons may employ the same words and phrases to express their feelings, and yet those feelings may be specifically different. Each may say, I felt the love of God shed abroad in my heart, which in the one case may be the genuine affection described in these words, while in the other it may be a mere transport of natural feeling, a mere selfish persuasion of being a favorite of heaven, or a high state of nervous exhilaration produced by a physiological cause. Both these persons may be sincere, according to the popular acceptation of that term, that is, both have really experienced a lively emotion, and both mean to express a simple fact, and yet the one is a real Christian, while the other may be in an unregenerate state. Another thing which ought to destroy this foolish persuasion that we can certainly determine the true spiritual condition of another person by hearing from him a narrative of his experience is that any words or phrases which can be used by really pious people may be learned by the designing hypocrite. What is to hinder such an one from using the very language and imitating the very manner in which true Christians have been heard to relate their experience? What can prevent deceivers from catching up the narrative of godly exercises so abundantly found in religious biography and applying it to themselves as though they had experience of these things? While only two classes of Christians have been mentioned, yet in each of these there are many subordinate divisions to describe all of which would be tedious and not for edification. The listener can readily apply the general principles to every variety of experience modified by this cause. In the preceding remarks, the healthy constitutional temperament has alone been brought into view, but by far the most distressing cases of conscience with which the spiritual physician has to deal are owing to a morbid temperament. As most people are inclined to conceal their spiritual distresses, few have any conception of the number of persons who are habitually suffering under the frightful malady of melancholy. With some this disease is not permanent but occasional. They have only periodical paroxysms of deep religious depression, 
and they may be said to have their compensation for the dark and cloudy day by being favored with one of peculiar brightness in quick succession. If their gloom was uninterrupted, it would be overwhelming, but after a dark night rises a lovely morning without the shadow of a cloud. This rapid and great alternation of feeling is found in those who possess what may be called a mercurial temperament. It is connected with a nervous system peculiarly excitable and exceedingly liable to temporary derangement. A rough east wind is sufficient to blow up clouds which completely obscure the cheerful sunshine of the soul, while the wholesome zephyrs as quickly drive all these gloomy clouds away. Such persons always have a stomach easily disordered, and one ounce of improper food or one too much of wholesome food is cost sufficient to derange the nerves and depress the spirits. The want of refreshing sleep or watchfulness is another cause of the same effects, and in its turn is an effect from disordered nerves. But physical causes are not the only ones which produce this painful state of feeling. It is often produced in a moment by hearing some unpleasant intelligence or by the occurrence of some disagreeable event. But as was hinted, when these people of nervous temperament are relieved from a fit of depression, their sky is uncommonly free from clouds, their hopes are lively, their spirits buoyant, and nothing can trouble them. These alternations of day and night, of sunshine and darkness, must of necessity affect feelings in regard to all manners, temporal and spiritual. For as in a dark night every object appears black, so when the mind is overcast with gloomy clouds, every view must partake of the same aspect. To many persons this description will be unintelligible, but by others it will be recognized at once as a just view of their own case. But when religious melancholy becomes fixed, it may be reckoned among the heaviest calamities to which our suffering nature is subject. It resists all argument and rejects every topic of consolation from whatever source it may proceed. It feeds upon distress and despair, and is displeased even with a suggestion or offer of relief. The mind thus affected seizes on those ideas and truths which are most awful and terrifying. Any doctrine which excludes all hope is congenial to the melancholy spirit. It seizes on such things with an unnatural avidity and will not let them go. There is no subject on which it is more vain and dangerous to theorize in our religious experience. It is therefore of unspeakable importance that ministers of the gospel who have to deal with diseased consciences should have had some experience themselves in these manners. This no, this no doubt is one reason why some intended to be sons of consolation to others have been brought through deep waters and have been buffeted by many storms before they obtained a settled peace of mind. It is a proper object of inquiry why in our day so little is heard about the spiritual troubles of which we read so much in the casuistical treatises of writers of a former age. It can scarcely be supposed that the faith of modern Christians is so much stronger than that of believers who lived in other days, that they are enabled to easily triumph over their melancholy fears and despondency. Neither can we suppose that Satan is less busy in casting his fiery darts and attempts to drive the children of God to despair, there is reason to fear that among Christians of the present time there is less deep spiritual exercise than in former days, and as little is said on the subject in public discourses, there may be greater concealment of the troubles of this kind than if these subjects were more frequently discussed. It is observable that all those who have experienced this sore affliction and have been mercifully delivered from it are very solicitous to administer relief and comfort to others who are still exposed to the peltings of the pitiless storm.
These are the persons who feel the tenderest sympathy with afflicted consciences and know how to bear with the infirmities and waywardness which accompany a state of religious melancholy. It is also remarkable that very generally they who have been recovered from such diseases attribute no small part of their troubles to a morbid temperament of body, and accordingly in their counsels to the melancholy they lay particular stress on the regular healthy state of the body. About the close of the 17th century, Timothy Rogers, 1658-1728, to a pious and able minister of London fell into a state of deep melancholy, and such was the distressing darkness of his mind that he gave up all hope of the mercy of God and believed himself to be a vessel of wrath designed for destruction. For the praise of the glorious justice of the Almighty, his sad condition was known to many pious ministers and people throughout the country, who it is believed were earnest and incessant in their supplications in his behalf. And these intercessions were not ineffectual, for it pleased God to grant a complete deliverance to his suffering servant. And having received comfort of the Lord, he was exceedingly desirous to be instrumental in administering comfort to others, with which he himself had been comforted. He therefore wrote several treatises with this object in view, which are well calculated to be of service to those laboring under spiritual distress. One of these is entitled, Recovery from Sickness, Another Consolation for the Afflicted, and a third, A Discourse on the Troubled Mind and the Disease of Melancholy. In the preface to this last, the author gives directions to the friends of persons laboring under religious melancholy how to treat them. The substance of these I will now communicate to the reader. Number one. Look upon your distressed friends as under one of the worst distempers to which his miserable life is exposed. Melancholy incapacitates them for thought or action. It confounds and disturbs all their thoughts and fills them with vexation and anguish. I verily believe that when this malign state of mind is deeply fixed and has spread its deleterious influence over every part, it is as vain to attempt to resist it by reasoning and rational motives as to oppose a fever or the gout or pleurisy. One of the very worst attendants of this disease is the want of sleep, by which in other distresses men are relieved and refreshed. But in this disease either sleep flies away or is so disturbed that the poor sufferer, instead of being refreshed, is like one on the rack. The faculties of the soul are weakened, and all their operations disturbed and clouded, and the poor body languishes and pines away at the same time. And that which renders this disease more formidable is its long continuance. It is a long time often before it comes to its height, and it is usually as tedious in its declension. It is in every respect sad and overwhelming, a state of darkness that has no discernible beams of light. It generally begins in the body and then conveys its venom to the mind. I pretend not to tell you what medicines will cure it, for I know of none. I leave you to advise with such as are skilled in physic and especially to such doctors as have experienced something of it themselves, for it is impossible to understand the nature of it any other way than by experience. There is a danger, as Richard Greenham says, that the bodily physician will look no further than the body, while the spiritual physician will totally disregard the body and look only at the mind. Number two, treat those who are under this disease with tender compassion, Remember also that you are liable to the same affliction, for however brisk your spirits and lively your feelings now, you may meet with such reverses, with such long and sharp afflictions as will sink your spirits. 
Many not naturally inclined to melancholy have by overwhelming and repeated calamities been, been sunk into this dark gulf. Number three, never use harsh language to your friends when under the disease of melancholy. This will only serve to fret and perplex them the more, but will never benefit them. I know that the counsel of some is to rebuke and chide them on all occasions, but I dare confidently say that such advisers never felt the disease themselves. For if they had, they would know that thus they do but pour oil into the flames and chafe and exasperate their wounds instead of healing them. John Dodd, by reason of his mild, meek, and merciful spirit, was reckoned one of the fittest persons to deal with those thus afflicted. Never was any person more tender and compassionate, as all will be convinced who will read the accounts of Mr. Peacock and Mrs. Drake, both of whom were greatly relieved by his conversation. Number four. If you would possess any influence over your friends in this unhappy state of mind, you must, you must be careful not to express any want of confidence in what they relate of their own feelings and distresses. On this point, there is often a great mistake. When they speak of their frightful and distressing apprehensions, it is common for friends to reply, This is all imaginary, nothing but a fancy, an unfounded whim. Now the disease is a real one, and their misery is as real as any experienced by man. It is true their imagination is disordered, but this is merely the effect of a deeper disease. These afflicted persons never can believe that you have any real sympathy with their misery or feel any compassion for them unless you believe what they say. Number five, do not urge your melancholy friends to do what is out of their power. They are like persons whose bones are broken and who are incapacitated for action. Their disease is accompanied with perplexing and tormenting thoughts. If you can innocently divert them, you would do them a great kindness. But do not urge them to do anything which requires close and intense thinking. This will only increase the disease. But you will ask, ought we not to urge them to hear the word of God? I answer, if they are so far gone in the disease as to be in continual unremitting anguish, they are not capable of hearing on account of the painful disorder of their minds. But if their disorders not come to such a distressing height, you may kindly and gently persuade them to attend on the preaching of the word. But beware of using the peremptory and violent method. The method pursued by John Dodd with Mrs. Drake should be imitated. The burden which overloaded her soul was so great that we never durst add any thereunto, but fed her with all encouragement, she being too apt to overcharge herself and to despair upon any addition of fuel to that fire which was inwardly consuming her. And so wherever she went to hear, notice was given to the minister officiating that he had such a hearer, and by this means she received no discouragement from hearing. Number six, do not attribute the effects of mere disease to the devil. Although I do not deny that he has an agency in producing some diseases, especially by harassing and disturbing the mind to such a degree that the body suffers with it. But it is very unwise to ascribe every feeling and every word of the melancholy man to Satan, whereas many of these are as natural consequences of bodily diseases as the symptoms of a fever, which a poor sufferer can no more avoid than the sick man can keep himself from sighing and groaning. Many will say to such an one, Why do you so pour over your case and thus gratify the devil? Whereas it is the very nature of the disease to cause such fixed musings, you might as well say to a man in a fever, Why are you not well? Why will you be sick? Some indeed suppose that the melancholy hug their disease or are unwilling to give it up. But you might as well suppose that a man would be pleased with lying on a bed of thorns or in a fiery furnace. 
No doubt the devil knows how to work on minds thus diseased, and by shooting his fiery darts he endeavors to drive them to utter despair. But if you persuade them that all which they experience is from the devil, you may induce the opinion in them that they are actually possessed of the evil one, which has been the unhappy condition of some whose minds were disordered. I would not have you to bring a railing accusation even against the devil. Neither must you falsely accuse your friends by saying that they gratify him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.